Come to Beading Together, a way of being together while you bead, jog, take your dog for a walk, do homework, drive, or procrastinate the many other things that you should be doing. We're here to keep you company. So pop in your AirPods, put on your headset, or turn up your speakers, and join us and our invited guests at the virtual kitchen table where we will talk about life, from birthing to the end, and all things in between. We are recording today on the traditional territory of the Chilquayuk First Nations, a territory that covers over 95,000 hectares of land in southwestern British Columbia, encompassing the entire Chilliwack River Valley, including Chilliwack Lake, Chilliwack River, Cultus Lake, and parts of the Chilliwack Municipal Area. As uninvited guests, we aim to walk gently on the land, with respect for its cultural history and with gratitude for being able to bear witness to its natural beauty. Hi everyone, I'm Lisa Shepherd. I'm known as a Métis beading artist, but just like you, I'm many layered. I'm also a mom, a wife, an Italian, a maker, a lifelong learner, and a person who stands with one foot in the West and one in the North while I celebrate the things I've done and contemplate all the things that are still left to do. In my heart, though, is a deep feeling of responsibility that I carry for future generations. This is episode three, the episode in which we will hold space for youth voices and to share perspective through the eyes of someone working with young people every day. I'm so happy to welcome my guest host, Alexandra de Montigny. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Lisa. Welcome. Hi, I'm so happy to be here today. Uh, I'm Alexandra, and I'm Métis on my mother's side. Uh, yeah, my grandmother, her family name was Korshen, and uh, I have some other family names as well. My other family names are Delorme and Pruden, and we just realized that we share those family names. We do. We've got Delorme's and Prudence in our family as well. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, and, it's and we've known each other for such a long time and never landed on that. I was going to say, which yeah. is, you know, that happens, but it's, it's crazy. It's kind of rare. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and on my father's side, I'm French and Hungarian, and yeah, I'm really happy to be here with you today. And so I have just gotten to the place now where I'm starting to think of you less as a youth, because I've known you for years as being a youth who was in uh, my BC, involved in my BC, and now you're a school teacher. I watched you go to university, and now you're in school with young people every day. Right. Yeah. I was a youth for a long time and now I've transitioned out of that that age of my life and now I teach uh, grade six, seven. I was a youth for a long time too. Yeah. I it mean, was just a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we all were once youth and yeah. <laughs> and so there's actually a generation between us. Like we're there's 20 year or 21 years difference between you and I. Yes. And so as we head into this podcast... Like, I really relate to youth, but really through the eyes of a mom who's raising a youth, mm -hmm. you know, whereas like, I feel like you're more directly connected to the youth. So you're going to kind of help bridge things for me today, I think. Right. I and hope bring, so. bring a different perspective. Yeah. 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 But the cool thing about us is that even though we have this generation that we still have this great relationship where we we've known each other for so long. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. 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 So what's it like being in school right now? Yeah, it's interesting. Um Obviously, we've had this pandemic going on for, oh, yeah. for, a, for, for, for a, five years, right? Yeah. Feels like. Right. And we say it's unprecedented times. Oh, yeah. But 
you know, is it unprecedented? When I got been... tired of that expression like way a long ago, like a, a year ago. I was tired of unprecedented times. It's not really unprecedented no, it's anymore. It's, yeah. it's kind of the new norm these days. Yeah. So what's that like, like with the, the young people in school? Um, I don't know. They're the young people. They're so resilient. I, you know, they're, they're growing up in this new age. They're growing up in, in, in a pandemic, right? It's, yeah. it's an interesting time to grow up. I don't know. None of us grew up during a pandemic. No, and- no. And you and I were talking earlier too, like, um, my access to knowing what was going on in the whole world looked a lot different when I was a young person than it does today. Mm-hmm. Like, I th- I feel like, on the one hand, it's really good, like our youth know so much. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, they're always teaching me. Yeah, they right? have access to a world of information. They're so informed. What do they teach you? What do- they teach me everything. <laughs> they- I mean, they they're so they're so linked into the internet right and so they know about they know about current trends they know about um like the latest songs the latest fashion they're so interested in what's happening out there in the world it's great they're I don't they want to know they're so interested in information yeah yeah and they seem real dialed into like social justice is what what I've been noticing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They're yeah, they're very informed about social justice, about um about like environmental causes too. Um yeah, they're I don't but, know. But but do we do we presume that, that like I always want to say the kids are all right. Um, but it's gotta be pretty heavy as well right now. Yeah, it is heavy I mean the interesting thing is that what you I think what we try to do or what I try to do as a teacher is like if you provide too much like if you make children aware of I mean it's of course they're aware of everything right Right. and what we're talking about is this heaviness right where maybe they're aware of too many problems and then we assume that it's too heavy for them but the opposite can happen too right where there can be this apathy like what can I do like there's so many problems. Oh so almost like a throwing in the towel like there's so much you know what does it matter. Right that's the opposite of it being too heavy right like what does it even matter. So I guess like the goal or my goal as an educator is to try to um try to enlighten them that like you can have something that you really care about right like what is that thing that you really care about right and try to like you know show them that there's a way that you can make a change if there's something that sparks passion or sparks interest right right? and so like what is that thing what is that thing that you care about what is that thing that and then just sort of lifting them to the highest potential like being able to explore what excites them anyway. Yeah, exactly. Because it's hard to feel like you can make a change on everything. Like it's too much, right? Exactly what you're saying. I have to say the other thing too, that like as a parent, what I notice is it feels to me like, you know, looking um, at things from an Indigenous perspective and thinking about our whole wellness, thinking about our mental, our physical, our emotional, our spiritual, that there's, it feels like there's more balance than there was when I was growing up but I don't know if I'm just looking at things through rose-colored glasses or if it's just a case of everything that's going on right now has people talking about mental health and that's a good thing right to be talking about it instead of 
just repressing it down and feeling it without feeling safe about speaking about these things. No, I agree. I think I think things are changing. I mean, we'll ask our youth today what yeah, they think. I know right? right now we're just talking about it, but we're going to hear from them directly. Right. Yeah. But I think there has been a shift. I think we try to, I mean, I guess I come at everything as an educator right now. So that's maybe the lens I'm putting on. But I think um, as an educator, we try to bring that into the curriculum, right? Like mental health, mental health awareness. And I don't know that that existed. I can't think about that even existing maybe 10 well, it, it didn't. Ago, like when right? I was in school, yeah. it didn't. Um, when it was talked about was when there was a crisis. Right. That was it. You exactly. Know, otherwise, we didn't really talk about these things. Right. And so I guess when, when we're talking about whole, whole, whole wellness, you're right. It's shifting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah. I just sound like Martha Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lisa, your first episode was about birth. Yes. And then your next one was about Christmas. Right. And this one's about youth. Yes. So what's going on? I know it's a really big open topic, isn't it? But I think you're going to hear a progression, right? We're starting out with Drew Nageo, who's going to talk to us about growing up as a Métis youth. And then we'll hear from Keenan McCarthy. And Keenan's going to speak to us about his journey completing university and going on to internship with the Ministry of Health. And then finally... Nat Cops of Red River Echoes is going to talk about their group of young people that have formed a collective with their own governance structure and what that looks like. Right. So we just get to hear from a bunch of youth and we get to hear their perspectives and we get to hear their voices. Yeah, I think it's just time to hold space and maybe ask a few questions and just see what they have to say. Great. I can't wait. Yeah, me too. So I'm happy to introduce our next guest, Drew Nageo. Drew is somebody that I met uh, many years ago through my BC, and I'm not going to say too much right now because I'm going to let Drew introduce themselves. Drew Nageo, Dishnikashin, Kishchi Temuan, and Lima Chifwian. I'm Drew Nageo. I'm calling in today from Golden, BC. Uh, which is on the uh, Tanaha and Chukwutm people. Drew, that was a beautiful introduction. It is always so good to hear the language spoken. Did you grow up speaking the language? Not really. Um, my my mom and grandma, um, when they were finding out more about their culture and like the history of it, they tried to talk to their relatives and elders that they knew were Métis to, to learn more of the language to be able to teach us when we were growing up. Um, and I was also able to go to several like language festivals and yes. events. So I, and I, yeah. <laughs> I know your mom is an accomplished jigger and I know that she goes into schools and she shares knowledge. She's a knowledge carrier in your area. And so you really have had pretty good exposure to the culture growing up, right? Definitely. Um, I grew up when I was, I think it was like four years old when I went to my first jigging workshop. <laughs> and nice. There's a big group of us that learned to do this and and then we were able to teach others as well and travel around. And you told me that your grandma 
remembers being told about Métis people who jig and play music, but that she didn't have the opportunity to do that herself. Why is that? So she grew up in the time when residential schools were like taking children. Um, So her family wanted to keep their kids safe. So they didn't tell them that they were Métis, but they they told them stories about neighbors who were Métis who would jig in their house and mm-hmm. try to like cover the windows and and be quieter so that they could still practice jigging and playing music without people seeing. Did it feel a little bit like you were learning the culture along with your family then at the same time? A part of it for sure. Um, but as soon as my grandma found out about it, she shared it with my mom, who was, I believe, in her 20s at the time. And they did all they could to kind of re, like, relearn all the Métis culture and see it as themselves now as opposed to a neighbor. Um, so they had a lot of knowledge by the time I was born. Um, but still, like, they're still learning new things every day about it. And my grandma's always reaching out to relatives that she knows now or Métis, and she's trying to teach them and learn more from them as well. And part of your experience is that your whole youth, you grew up being involved in MyBC. Am I right? Yes. Um, it wasn't as much my BC then it, it kind of like I never heard that name for it until more recently right um but yeah I grew up like there's a few families here in Golden that would do everything together we would jig together and, and learn fiddle um we would have like kitchen parties and, and bake bannock and stuff like that as well what's been the one thing that you feel that you've really gained from that Um, I think like acceptance more because okay. being Métis there, there is like stigma around it and, and people call us like mixed or half breeds and stuff. So I think just being Métis in general, I have a more open mind to different cultures can I ask about your experience in school with relations to the culture? Like, I'm curious if, because you had such good um, opportunities to learn because of your family being so involved, um, did you bring that to share with people at school? I mean, so we, we hear that happening sometimes where almost like kids are put on the spot to sort of be the ones to share the culture. How was it for you when you were in school with regards to the Métis culture? Um, growing up in a small town, there there's not a huge variety of people. There was okay. <laughs> the Métis community is is really big, um, but it was more for at school. Like the supports were more based around Aboriginal. Like we had the Abed room um, and learning, like in high school and the units in history and that kind of stuff. Like you touch on Métis and you touch on other. Um, indigenous groups but there's nothing that was there specifically for us as Métis people it's definitely changed the past few years my mom is an elementary school teacher so she 
she teaches all of like her whole school how to jig now and she teaches about the history of the Métis people uh, and at the high school now we have we have an aboriginal grad ceremony and, and nice. that it's mostly Métis people which is awesome oh, okay. to see interesting yeah that is interesting things have changed a lot even in the last few years haven't they just in the education system yeah yeah what's on your wish list for Métis youth like what do you think that Métis youth would really benefit from um in relation to schools I think more support and instead of kind of having just a room that's just aboriginal and not kind of acknowledging the different like indigenous groups and and metis people and stuff like having a bit more like i don't don't know how to say it um like you want people to be seen is that what you're saying like yeah you don't want it like people aren't just aboriginal like people are so more distinction like specificity I think so. Um, Because growing up, like, while I was still learning about myself and my identity, um, people would ask, oh, what are you? And lots of the time, I would just say I'm Aboriginal or Indigenous instead. And now I always say I'm Métis. And if people are confused, I explain what it is. You're teaching. Yeah, I don't sell myself short. Yeah, good job. Yeah, I feel like that's a big part of what ends up happening, right, is we end up teaching each other. And uh, maybe those spaces, maybe that's what needs to happen a little bit more. I don't know. I think so. Um, I'm a part, I'm, I'm a youth rep for my BC, for okay. Region 4 in the Kootenays here. Um, and recently we've started creating these subcommittees. Um, okay. And I'm currently in charge of the education subcommittee. Oh, so good I'm, for you. I have met with youth from BC, one in Alberta for school right now. And we've talked about what is lacking in education. This is K to 12 and post-secondary. And we've kind of made plans on on first steps we want to take to include Métis culture in education more. And what is it that the youth want? Yeah, I'm curious about that as well. Um, so most of the people in, in this group are in post-secondary. There is also a couple that are teachers or becoming teachers um, for elementary schools. And they want more support in helping to teach about the Métis. Um, so we've, we've talked about trying to make like workbooks or a website where you can, with with links that you can trust to to good information and for all ages as well um and just ways that that teachers who aren't Métis can can teach about the Métis culture as well okay I asked this of another guest today and I'm going to ask it of you as well with where you are right now, if you could look back at, let's go back a little farther, let's say primary age Drew, and give yourself advice regarding like the culture and what you know now, what would you say? What would you want to, to tell primary age Drew? I would say hold on to the culture. Um it's when you're when you're a kid it's it's hard to kind of 
realize how big and important things are. Hmm. Um, so when I went to like language workshops growing up, I, it was fun. It was great. And I, I tried hard, but then when I got home, I just kind of let, let myself forget about it again. Right. Um, and then when I got to a little bit older, jigging wasn't, didn't seem as cool to me. <laughs> um, like when you get a little bit older, like you're worried about people judging you and stuff. So it was, right. I kind of stepped away from it a bit and fiddle music as well. Um, and I've seen you jig and you should let people yeah. see you jig. You're a beautiful dancer. I think life gets in the way a little bit. So I wish I could have told myself to just hold on tight and really take a few minutes each day to practice. Nice. Why is that my, important? Why, why, is, why would that be important? Um, so we don't lose the culture so we can reclaim it. Um, so I can know enough to be able to teach my children about being Métis. Nice. And so um, what is something that you would like to tell to somebody my age or, or older than me even that you think that we need to know about youth experiences or, or what youth are needy? It's sometimes hard to get youth engaged, I find. Um, being a youth rep it's I try to reach out to communities and you don't always get a response and that that is difficult and it's disheartening as well Um, but I think the truth is that youth do want to learn they want to gain knowledge about the history and about the culture and be able to live with it in their their day-to-day lives but I think it's some people just need that push um and they they want to learn so they they're they're open to hearing stories and getting encouragement and like hearing about opportunities that they could take part in yeah yeah i fully agree with that yeah i do as well i think that right now it's it's tough because there's so much going on and it's hard to meet in person and everything and you know we're all so tired of that too um, I know I look forward to being able to gather as a community and have all the ages together and, and see everyone know that everybody's doing all right. Yeah. And what I hear you saying is like, don't give up on the youth. <laughs> like, they want, they want the knowledge. They want the culture. Mm-hmm. Which I feel um, like we feel that way too. Right. Like we don't who, want... Who doesn't want yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. Definitely. I think um, we are also trying to to speak out and tell everybody what we need um, but sometimes youth voices are are told to be a little bit quieter because you're you're young you don't quite know what you want in life yet um, and I think it's really important to listen to the younger youth because it's 15 to 30 it's a really big age difference and there's a lot of people in different stages of their lives that are considered youth Um, and it's important to listen to all of them. I think as well, um, it's easy for us as older people to think that we have something to teach the youth, but I think truthfully, the youth are teaching us a lot and, you know, making space to be able to hear what they have to say can help us to grow as well 
just by being able to hear those voices because I don't know, Alexandra and I were talking on the way here about how incredibly informed young people are today, you know, and that once upon a time, it was like, we felt like we had to be careful about the things that we talked about. And, um, but the youth really know what's going on. They really are very well informed. Would you say that I'm on the right track with that thinking? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think youth hold a lot of pride and are like, yeah, pride in their identities. Um, and want to flaunt it and want to teach others about it. And that's why like there is some like miscommunication sometimes between generations. Um, and it's. What could fix I that? Like, just... I don't expect you to fix it, but like, do you have ideas? Like what could fix that? What could bridge that? And just being open to hearing people out. And, and if something like you don't agree with something and then to let them know that and right and and don't just like put it down but but go in with it um like an idea of how things can change and you said that you're the um you're the youth rep for region two is that what you said region four region so that's four in yeah and so how are the youth doing in Region 4? Um, it's always hard during the holidays because people get really busy. Um, and then with like university students, that's when exams and stuff are. So it's we're starting to get back into things now. But I think there is a lot of youth around here that can't wait to get back to going to events and getting involved mm -hmm. in festivals and stuff. And they're just waiting for the, the okay with like the government to, to be able to see more youth in, in person again. Right. It must be kind of, they must feel kind of disconnected not being able to go to events right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know I feel my, that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The MyBC group, we meet at least once a month over video chat and update each other which is I think more often than we've ever done it before before this it was we were meeting every two weeks and just that in itself is is huge being able to connect with just these few youth across the province and they give all the other youth voices as well what are you most proud of that you see your your peers and and the younger youth doing um, I think I'm proud of the fact that we are proud of our identity and instead of hiding it, like my, my grandma's parents did with her, we're flaunting it and we're teaching everybody else about it. My partner is Métis as well, um, and didn't grow up quite as involved as my family did. So to be able to teach him about his own culture is really exciting. Yeah, that's amazing. That's really special to be able to do that and to have that that thing in common. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm so glad that you're able to come and speak to us today. Is there anything else that you'd like to share that you'd like to say? Because you said in the beginning that you wish that youth had more opportunities to be heard. And so 
Is there anything else that you would like to add while we hold this space? No pressure, no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) I think just my advice to anybody who is Métis or who knows Métis people is to reach out to the youth and ask them, what do you want? And do you have anything to teach me? Do you have anything to tell me about your experience? I think that's really good advice. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for taking time to talk to us today, Drew. Yeah, thank you. So that was Drew Nagao calling in from Golden, BC. Yeah, and they're pretty lucky to have grown up so immersed in the culture from their mom. Yeah, very fortunate. Yeah, what a gift yeah. to be able to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's the same with you and your, your son. I, I like to think sometimes that it's being able to say that this next generation is growing up immersed in the culture, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. What a gift. Yes. Our next guest is Keenan McCarthy, a little bit of an older youth who has completed university and has moved on to an internship. Now, when I first met Keenan, he was a youth about 25 or 26 years old who had just stepped into a president role of of his Métis community. And I just remember all the presidents talking about this young guy who's just stepped into this role and he's doing such a good job. So Keenan, I'm so happy to have you on this podcast. Welcome. Please introduce yourself. Awesome. Thank you, Lisa, for the introduction. Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. My name's Keenan McCarthy. Uh, Before I go any further, I just wanted to acknowledge that today I'm coming to you from the traditional territories of the Lekwungen-speaking people. Um, And just for those that don't know, uh, that would be out in Victoria. So I'm calling in, yes, straight from Victoria right now. The community that that Lisa had been talking about was Nova Métis Heritage Association out in Surrey. And I had been serving a number of years actually on the board over there as a board member before stepping into my role a little bit uh, while a year before the COVID pandemic. So thank you for having me today, Lisa. Really appreciate it. So I wasn't surprised when I found out that you had gotten your bachelor's degree of political science and history. Congratulations. Thank you. It was a long time coming. I'm so interested to hear what's inspired you into that direction. All right. Well, thanks, Lisa. Uh, It's just, well, it's kind of multifaceted in the sense that, well, first, maybe I'll explain why I did history as well as political science. Mm -hmm. I think that political science gives you kind of the ability to impact kind of like the present and obviously that carries into the future, but more often than not, people don't really have a grounding of the past and kind of like the history that contributes to the present state that we're in, as well as obviously how that'll impact future outcomes. So really it just seemed almost like a no brainer to me uh, wanting to enter the political sphere with, you know, these grand ambitions to eventually uh, become a politician. So that kind of at least explains that piece. So really just understanding who we are, where we come from in order to be able to move forward is kind of Mm -hmm. what I'm hearing you say. Is that true? Yes, exactly. And 
uh, at least in regards to, oh, why do I want to wade into kind of like this world of politics? It really kind of lends itself again, kind of like to the history aspect, um, maybe a little background. Uh, I am Métis on my mother's side uh, through my grandmother. And my relationship with my grandmother really kind of really drove this need of mine to want to enter the political sphere. Um, and this is, again, kind of due uh, to the history. And I think something that like all, almost all Métis people can kind of relate with this, this pe the period of time before now uh, where we were experiencing hardship and discrimination and all these other aspects and looking at it kind of from a social justice aspect as well as wanting to obviously give back specifically to my community and right. being able to personalize it through my grandmother's experiences. And your grandmother, she had a pretty big role in your life, didn't she? She did. Um, I was fortunate enough to actually live with my grandmother um, she lived with us, uh, my family, I have my mother, father, and two other siblings. So I felt obviously very blessed to be able to have that connection with my grandmother, you know, well into my teens. Yeah, uh, sometimes I feel like, you know, we just live this way and we kind of take for granted that everybody, you know, everybody kind of lives the same way. But that um, multi-generational family is something that was really the way that we were in the past, the way that our mm -hmm. grand, or that our way that our ancestors were. And do you think that we're still like that today or are we kind of moving away from that? I, at least in my personal experience, that's kind of how I feel in relation to my family. Um, I, I have seen like, a, a, well, a couple other families with multi-generational households and being connected in that way. And it, I think it's really important, especially nowadays, kind of given um, the way Métis people are distributed, um, being kind of like an urban Indigenous people sprinkled throughout all the different metropolitan areas, well, specifically kind of like all these the BC, well, in the BC context, that is. So being able to interact and have access to um, elders and interact that way I think is so so important and mm. it's I guess maybe speaking to my own experiences at home um, I did obviously enjoy uh, being able to learn from my grandmother but unfortunately um, at the time she wasn't really comfortable with um, talking about maybe the Métis aspect right. of her Métis ancestry right. and once again, that lends itself kind of to like the history, well, the history behind it. But I'll bet, I'll bet that in was. other ways, she probably still was teaching you a way of being like, it, yes. you know, that, and I know that you talked to me before about your entry into political science, that you felt that she was somebody who is, you know, had very um, strong feelings or, or I can't remember how you worded it. I think you said she was altruistic. Yeah, very yeah. altruistic. And thank you, Lisa. Um, she had just a way about her in the way that she kind of looked at the world. That is, she saw that everybody was not only connected, but that anything could happen to anybody at any time and ultimately lay them low. 
um, it was kind of like this lack of ego and kind of an understanding of how the world can shape people in addition to how people can shape people. So right. maybe I'll provide an example. Uh, one thing that really stuck with me that she did um, a number of times, and um, I will say she was not uh, a woman of means, obviously, right. uh, was she would go shopping um, with my mother or my aunt or my uncles. Um, and well, they'd go grocery shopping and there would be people, you know, in front of them um, saying, oh, card declined, card declined. Oh, um, you know, I'm going to have to take a couple items off of here and then having to try and make a decision. Um, she would step in and say, I'll pay for, you know, the entire order. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Right. And this was, you know, an elderly pensioner. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I see that actually a lot. And, and I've, it seems to me a lot of times it's the people who have lived, you know, with maybe not as much that are quick to understand another's situation that way and they will can jump empathize. into help. Yeah. 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 It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that, Keenan. That's, that's wonderful. I'm so glad. I'm sure that she'd be very proud of the work that you're doing now. Yeah, I would hope so. She yeah. Would <laughs> yeah. Um, now, so now you're in Victoria, You because mm-hmm. you completed your work at university, you're in Victoria now. And yes. what are you doing there? So currently, I'm working with the Ministry of Health, I entered through the Indigenous Youth Internship Program into any youth, you know, um, aged 18 to 30. I would recommend looking into that. I believe we're going to be they might have or they will be soon sending out uh, applications for the new cohort and that runs kind of like yearly like a school year starting in September with you being placed in government ministry. Help me out here a little bit like for our really like younger listeners what is an internship like let's take it right back to that. (laughs) Okay let's start kind of like from square one. It's a good question. Yeah. Yes I mean like um when you kind of think like internship, you you envision like uh, these people working kind of like in the business or tech sector, not being really paid anything, running around, getting kind of like coffee to get kind of like their foot <laughs> in the door. But this isn't kind of like necess- this is definitely not like the experience with the Indigenous Youth Internship Program. Um, you're paid a, a wage. Uh, well, a decent wage, I'll even say that. Uh, oh, nice. And your your COVID obviously has kind of like altered the way things work a little bit Um, you're placed in a ministry and you'll have to uh, if it entails moving you know I was a Surrey resident so I want to work in the Ministry of Health they're based in Victoria so I moved to Victoria so basically paid wage given the opportunity and then placed with a mentor uh, a supervisor, and then um, you have uh, the administrator for like the program. So you have the IIT program, and then you have like your immediate kind of like supervisor within your ministry. So you have a lot of people uh, looking out for you, wanting to help you out. And then, of course, you have the other uh, participants, not participants, other and, colleagues. And so the in ministries your could be which ministries? Uh, ministry of Health, uh, Ministry of youth and family, well, child development. Okay. My goodness, I'm bad with a number of my ministries, uh, as well as 
really just any minute, any provincial ministry that you can think of usually will have a post. Um, I saw a posting with the ministry of, uh, well, with the minister, ministry of housing and the attorney general's office. So really it covers a lot, even like natural resources. Um, you see some interns working up in the interior. And how so, long have you been, how long have you been doing this for? Like how far along are you? I'm about, it would be, if I start in September, with my terrible math, that would be like four and a bit, four months and a bit, five months. That's great. And how's yeah. it going? It's going great. Um, it's funny, and I really value my university education, because I think without it, I wouldn't have been able to get as much value as I have out of it. But I feel like I've learned so much in such a short amount of time, and it's really given me like this necessary perspective and maybe something that I might want to communicate to, you know, youth that are looking to get into university and post-secondary or even going through it right now in their early years is to definitely look into co-op placements. That is getting credit to work at the, at the same time in a relevant placement for your degree, because it really like just connecting the dots and understanding like, okay, this is why they placed emphasis on this, or, right. you know, this is an area that I think I would be very interested in, or, you know, on the contrary, uh, if this is the kind of job I'm doing, maybe this isn't maybe the degree I want to pursue. So really just kind of perspective building. I feel like it's just such a, a big time of change as well, right? Like it's so much opportunity. It's got to be very exciting to be learning so much and, and being right in the midst of things, but also such a change, like, you know, going from the lower mainland to Victoria. And and I can't imagine that there's been a lot of time to sort of rest and absorb it all. Definitely kind of like not. And uh, I guess this kind of maybe I'll steer the conversation here a little bit yeah, towards please. just this idea of um, I feel very privileged in the sense that I have a really extensive support network available to me. Right. Yeah. And maybe just, um, you know, pa wanting to encourage people to, you know, maybe pause and reflect on uh, what privileges they have kind of like mm -hmm. with their family, what connections that they have within their community or kind of like what networks they've been able to set up for themselves to get the support. And, um, you know, I think it might be a very different story had I, you know, none of these supports right. really from uh, moving over to Victoria, um, not really having like um, an understanding of what uh, renting, would look like or you hear about how bad the uh, rental and real estate market is but until you really kind of like immerse yourself into it it's really you know really informative um, maybe I'll kind of give you like an example um, we we tried to give ourselves a month to look at places that is uh, research contact uh, potential landlords uh, book viewings, etc. And the speed at which the market moves and the number of people looking for places is just kind of like astounding. Um, we booked, we had booked, because we're on the mainland, you know, it's quite the, the journey heading over to Victoria uh, to uh, actually engage in a viewing, right? So it was really important trying to set up these viewings, but 
unfortunately, you know, you can't line them up all in a row. Rather, it's at the, the landlord's preference, not the right. the potential uh, renter's preference because there's such, you know, a large volume of applicants, right? Yeah, Why you would used they the expression rental competition when we were talking. Yes, yeah. definitely a competition. Um, for instance, I guess one, one uh, scenario was we had we were like one of the first like uh, people to reply to a posting to try and get a booking to view. And, you know, this had been on the weekend and we were heading like Monday or Tuesday, like this was a one or two day um, window here. Right. So we had, we had booked and then we were like, we wanted to make sure everything was good to go before we headed over. And we phoned, didn't hear back. And finally we get a hold of the person and they had already rented it out. And this was in like a 48 hour span. Wow. Right. So just absolutely insane. And I've heard that one of the struggles is, you know, finding a place to rent, but another struggle too is the price of renting. Was that something you struggled with as well? Yes, yes, yes. Um, the, the rental that I have, like, um, you know, I had these kind of like ideas, one bedroom apartment, bachelor. Uh, I thought it might be a little bit like, I'm I'm almost like, I, I'm at the realm of uh, $2,000 a month for rent, right? This is as a single person in a 700 square foot apartment, right? So it's a little bit challenging that way looking at it. And obviously the, the better priced apartments are the ones that, are snapped up really fast so what remains really are the like the ones that kind of like the the periphery for price and you know kind of like this urgency that is I have an employment opportunity I don't want to miss out on said opportunity therefore I'm going to pay the price to do it right and I mean that's applicable I guess to many uh, situations um, university students right I mean I just you're feel so like- excited as yeah. I'm listening to this, like, it's just so hard to hear as a mom, like, what a struggle that it is. And, and you know, Keenan, thank you so much for acknowledging privilege. Like, I just think that that is so key to what, you know, everything that you're talking about, you know, and I, I just think about, um, I'm, I'm glad that you're able to do the things that you're able to do. And I, it just makes my heart break for the young people who maybe don't have that privilege to be able to do that like I think that therein lies the issue of equity you know regarding Mm -hmm. education right Um, and I feel like it's your awareness of that as well if you don't mind my saying that I feel it's your awareness of that that maybe has led you into the the path that you're going down like working with in the Ministry of Health I know you were talking about some of the things that you were doing there and I I feel like equity is kind of at the heart of a lot of what you're doing yeah do you want to share some of what you're doing there yeah sure let's jump a little bit into what I'm doing with the Ministry of Health specifically I'm working with the Health Technology Assessment Unit and maybe I'll just kind of describe what a technology is before Mm -hmm. I kind of jump forward because you know you immediately assume that it's you know this right a piece of he's holding up a cell phone (laughs) cell phone thank you or a picture of a dog um yes like you think technology is electronic in nature but that isn't the case it could be a technique or uh a, a certain kind of like surgery like a procedure right so what my unit is responsible for is 
unfortunately, we have a limited amount of resources. And, you know, all these innovations manifest, well, appear um, within the, the healthcare system. And because we have this, these limited dollars, we have to look at the technology that emerges, uh, check, you know, the population, like the amount of people that it impacts, the cost associated with implementing the technology. It's kind of like utilitarian in nature that is the greatest amount of happiness for the greatest amount of people. Right. And so that's our job, but it also, it's also very obviously scientific. That is very quantitative. We look at numbers and it's very grounded kind of like in Western science and it doesn't uh, really take into consideration other, other knowledge sources, specifically indigenous ones. And, you know, as a Métis person, I want more equitable outcomes for Indigenous and Métis people. So what I'm doing is I'm reviewing our process, uh, trying to find ways in which we can uh, better uh, better represent Indigenous people within the process uh, and, well, Indigenous knowledge practices so uh, and I'm experience, curious, like really. In which ways are you able to center Indigenous ways of knowing and, you know, and doing things with, like, can you give an example or? Yes. So what I look at specifically is, well, what I've been looking at specifically has been the the connection to community okay, uh, yeah. and kind of, well, also a little bit of kind of like, you know, uh, when, when we're looking at the technologies, one thing that I've been kind of like puzzling myself around is the idea of like, you know, where where is this need coming from? Who's determining mm. this need? Is the indigenous community identifying like a certain, like certain problems that need to be addressed within the community and then it's being elevated up into a technology or like kind of like... So is that instead of assumptions being made about what we need is that yes, what you're saying exactly so, that's exactly it right that makes and a lot of sense like who has the voice to say what the need is yeah and it really comes to this idea of like nothing about us without us right and i mean it's it's kind of it's a really difficult job in the sense that you see like being a government part of government and trying to you know stay in one lane is a little bit difficult because you almost want to reform kind of the entire system. That is, you want to look at ways in which uh, Indigenous people can, you know, more Indigenous people can be employed in healthcare. And, you know, good will obviously come from that because perspective will, you know, finally encompass more Indigenous voices and there will be spillover effects. Uh, so if you could look back at yourself, say, 10 years ago, what advice would you give? How old are you now, Keenan? Oh, I'm 28. 28. So what advice would you give? Oh, let's go back even further. What advice would you give 15-year-old Keenan? Hmm. Uh, let's see. I'd tell him maybe a couple hairstyles wouldn't work out. <laughs> first off. Totally fair. <laughs> 
secondly, I would really encourage him to, so long-winded rant incoming. Uh, <laughs> okay. I think that our society is very individualistic and mm. Keenan in high school, you know, wanted to be an island, you know, on himself, within himself, that is like provide what he could not really seek help because, you know, seeking help is weakness. Relying on others is weakness. You should be able to do everything by yourself and by seeking help, you're making yourself vulnerable um, to other people. Um, I would really challenge that perspective as well as drive my younger self towards seeking mentorship, especially kind of within the community. Um, I don't, I'm probably, I probably not coming out of, well, off of it, well, as it, but I'm an introvert. That is like, I recharge kind of like in isolation and solace. I don't like big crowds, lots of noise, that kind of thing. Yeah, I feel Wallflower. that. Yeah. So I would really, really challenge my younger self. Like instinctively you, you avoid uncomfortable, um, uncomfortable positions. I would encourage myself to embrace that discomfort more than anything because uh, stress ultimately results in evolution. I mean, like. Ah, Amazing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, growth through allowing a certain amount of vulnerability, right? Right. And I guess the amount of stress, right? A healthy amount of stress. Yes. The teacher in the room is reminding us a healthy amount of (laughs) stress. It's true, though. Right. You don't want too much, right? You have to work within within your limits. So that's actually a nice segue, because my next question Mm -hmm. is, what would you want my generation and older to know? Or to think about? Or what would you challenge us with? Really? Really? I think your generation. And don't talk about my hairstyle. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I would point to um, that you know there's this kind of idea amongst I think some older people too that they're that they don't really have much to give to the old the younger generation. Mm-hmm. That is one thing that I really struggled with when once I started becoming kind of like more self-aware was the need for mentorship being able to connect with adults um, outside of my family, right? Because I hate to say it, Lisa, and maybe you experience this, you know, as a mother, you tell your son something, it doesn't sink in and he hears it from somebody totally different. And then like, it's an epiphany, right? And you've been telling them the same No, it thing never happens God's with us. Really? <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that finding validation by hearing the many adult voices around you. And I I guess I'm also a really big believer that um, we can always be that one adult in a young person's life that can make all of the difference in the world to them, right? Mm -hmm. That can really like change their their trajectory towards success. Really, it comes down to providing encouragement and kind of fertilizer as well as, I'll say fertilizer, but um, opportunities for um, youth to make these mistakes and be supported. Um, you know, uh, people are really risk adverse. Um, and I think that, you know, that's all generations really. We're afraid to make a mistake, make ourselves vulnerable because then it reflects poorly on ourselves, and maybe it's a matter of ego. But yeah. 
I don't think our society recognizes that mistakes are necessary to progress and that good can come from mistakes so long as you know they're not <laughs> yeah. life-ending. Well, and so like thank you for that because of course as a beadwork artist I always talk about the one wrong bead right and that mm. we're human beings and we make mistakes and you know in- invention comes from those mistakes and you know progress comes from those mistakes but I think that um, Alexandra hit the nail on the head when she talked about you know like knowing the difference between I think when you're talking about risk taking it's that knowing the difference between a healthy risk and an unhealthy risk mm-hmm. you know like if you can stop and ask yourself um, what's the worst that can happen in this situation right and if the worst that's going to happen is I might make a mistake then I think that's okay well and especially with our youth right like they have to be able to make mistakes because you know that's a time to learn and they have to be able to make a lot of mistakes at that time right yeah in their lives Uh, so do I at my age of course of course (laughs) we never stop making mistakes everybody has to be able to make mistakes but for youth you know you're trying things for the first time often right in your lives and so there has to be room to to make a lot of mistakes it's an age of making mistakes yeah absolutely and Keenan. I think that kind of comes back to the equity piece, right? You know, right. people, people, we we can't afford to make the same mistakes. That is, you know, uh, a a, per, a youth that's just come out of the foster system and is now on their own and has done everything right. You know, they can't make mistakes. Whereas I can make a mistake and know that I have my family waiting in the wings. I have a place to go to and. You know, people don't have that and that's really affected my thinking regarding uh, my political aspirations and advocacy within the community that, that is increasing the amount of equity to allow people to make mistakes. Keenan, I'm so glad that you're doing the work that you're doing when I hear hear what you're saying I'm just so glad that you're there like looking out for everybody by being in it and by being the change and you know fixing you know to the best of your ability like doing what you can using your your knowledge and your experiences to do this good work thank you yeah no it's definitely i really enjoy doing the work it really energize like re-energizes me and just being surrounded by people that want to um, contribute and give back to the community is just, once again, just such a blessing, so energizing. And I, I get to learn a lot from people. I hope that you'll connect back with me at some point. I would love to see how you're doing in this like a year from now and, and that kind of thing. But thank you so much for um, coming on to this podcast, for not hesitating. I'm so glad to have your voice mixed in with this yeah and have a great time with your internship we we're wishing you the best yes thank you thank you so much for having me on today and the opportunity to speak with you so that was keenan mccarthy yeah and it's such a treat to speak to him i mean what an accomplished young youth he's done so much and what I really appreciate about Keenan is he is just so dialed in to what is going on around him in his community yeah for sure yeah. so our next guest is Nat Cops, and Nat is with a group called Red River Echoes um, Nat I'm so excited to have you on the show and to hear a little bit about what you're doing would you like to introduce yourself 
Yeah, of course, Marcy, Lisa, um, thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Nat Cops. Uh, my family name is uh, Lajmadier or Lajmodier or whatever kind of way <laughs> you want to pronounce it. There's lots of versions. Um, I'm located in the Métis homeland, Treaty 3 traditional territories of the Ojibwe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dene, and uh, Lakota, Dakota, and Sioux peoples. So a wonderful feeling to be uh, where where my people come from. So something I thought was kind of interesting is that when Lisa first reached out to the Red River Echoes, she was originally talking to Claire. Yes. Can one of you explain uh, what why Nat's here? Yeah, Nat why Nat's here? That's such a good question, and it's it's very interesting. Do you wanna do you wanna explain about that, Nat? I'd absolutely love to. So um, I realized in my introduction I didn't say that I'm part of the group Red River Echoes, our our little collective over here in the Red River Valley. Um, so. The way that our collective works is that there's no hierarchy, no set hierarchy. So there's no group of people or one person that is in charge of one thing. Um, that'll change depending on when we have meetings and, and what uh, capacity folks have. But um, basically there's a few members who kind of stay on top of the email stay on top of um, communications that we get with other groups, uh, with relations with kin, that kind of thing. Um, and and the way that it works is, you know, Claire might check the emails, she might have a conversation with you, Lisa, and then ask the group who has capacity, interest, um, and is kind of being called to, to speak on, on certain topics. So um, it's been really great because uh, in my other life, I'm a lawyer and I can get really, really busy and overwhelmed and not have capacity to be involved in ways that um, I'd like to all the time. So, you know, those moments when I can be involved and, and the right project comes along, um, our, our system, our, our group is really flexible in that way. You talked to me about a flower model, that you have this flower model with the way that you do things. So we call it um, our constitution. There's actually quite a few uh, lawyers and, and legally trained folks in, in our group. So uh, we, we've been using that word, but it's also our system of governance. So when we first came together, you know, because it's the pandemic, it was March 2021, um, and we were doing everything over Zoom, and we were trying to figure out ways to make our group um, feel connected, but also how to make sure that we um, keep moving forward and keep growing as a group and and uh, and organize ourselves. So what we came up with was the idea of circles. So we have in the center um, our main circle. So that's everyone who's a member and who participates in our group. So that you can think of that as the center of the flower. And imagine this flower as a five petal beaded flower. So then we have five other uh, petals, let's say, spreading out from the middle, and they're overlapping, almost like right. a Venn diagram. Right. So each petal has a different, um, is a different aspect of our collective. So we have an education petal, um, a voice petal. So that's um, what we could also say is kind of our communications, our okay. comms group. Right. We call that voice. 
um, our advocacy pedal. We also call that our relations pedal, how we relate to others and to ourselves. We have a healing and support pedal. Um, and, and so each of those all work together to form our group and, and that's how we organize. So I mentioned that the pedals overlap with each other in the way that you don't have to only do one and you don't have to do any at all. So you can just be part of the group, be part of that center, come to whatever meeting you can, be engaged in whatever way and capacity that you can at the time. Or if you're, you've got a ton of time and a ton of energy and a ton of capacity, you can be involved in every single one. And we have members doing both of those. Um, so, so that's the way that we've kind of structured ourselves. So when I'm hearing you describe that, I'm thinking about my own child who's who's in school and the way that school looks so different than when I was in school and when projects are being done that it's really coming very much strength based what is it that you want to do where are your interests you know we're here to to help you achieve the very best that you can can achieve based on what you're interested in would you say that's that's a fair statement Alexandra right yeah that's always the goal yeah Yeah. and so now I'm hearing like this the Red River Echoes is a youth collective is that correct to say that well i we're we consider ourselves first and foremost a collective we our membership is largely kind of 18 to 35 with most of us kind of in our mid to late 20s um and and we try not to use um narrow our group membership by using the word youth but we are thank you young energized organized (laughs) young people um Young at, young at heart and young at spirit. Yes. But I think that it's really <laughs> exciting to hear that, you know, look, looking at what is coming out of school and then, you know, the way that you've set up this structure. And it just makes me think of, you know, when I hear about people decolonizing systems, like that's, there's a lot to think about with that. And could mm-hmm. you explain like, so if, let me back up a little bit. When I first heard about Red River Echoes, the part that really intrigued me is I was hearing that you were going around and visiting with some of the old people and like taking that old way of doing things to keep connected with community by sitting down and visiting. And that was something that was just really refreshing to return to that. Um, And I think that that is like one of those steps that I think of when I think about decolonizing, like the way that we're doing things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So for those who aren't familiar, uh, in October, some members of our collective uh, got together over the Thanksgiving long weekend and were able to uh, travel and meet uh, with some of our elders, some, some of our old people and, um, and also to visit some important, uh, parts of our land and parts of our uh, community outside of the Red River Valley. So they were able to uh, visit um, Maria Campbell, who is, of course, a, a well-known elder and a stalwart in our community, um, visit Batash, really feel grounded and connected to the places and people that make us. Um, I think, you know, Lisa, you and I talked about this before, um, the idea that for so long, part of Métis history was really insulating yourself to maybe just your family mm-hmm. or to to those close, really small kinship networks to protect ourselves, to hide who we are, 
to hide our history mm-hmm. from outsiders or for from society or or you know our our neighbors that that might not understand or might be prejudiced against Métis people. And I think one of the the real joys of the collective is to reinvigorate kinship in a really grounded and practical way. So it might not mean that you know I'm directly related to one of my other collective members, though, to be frank, we probably all are <laughs> in some way, all cousins. Um, but, you know, it's it's decolonizing and, and, and reconnecting, uh, you know, those close kinship ties that Métis people had for, for generations and for centuries. So, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, almost, it, it, it's, it sounds more intentional, I think, than it actually <laughs> is or was. A, a, a joy of the group is that it's been so organic. And, you know, we didn't set out, let's say, going back to the Constitution, to design our organization around a beaded flower or around right. those five petals. That just happened. You know, we were talking about, okay, do we want subcommittees? Do we want this? Do we want that? And as we're talking, one of the members is like, you know what? I, I just sketched it out. And I drew some circles and look what it is. And it was it's louder. And it was one of those moments that it was like tears, shivers, we're all crying over Zoom. You know, I mean, also probably because it was it is the pandemic, but it felt really, oh, sure. really special when that happened. <laughs> but isn't that kind of what just happens when everybody comes and sits in a circle and we're all equal in the circle and there's nobody in front of us or behind us or above us or below us. And we're just there. Like, isn't that kind of what happens is that we land on solutions or we land on ideas that we might otherwise not have landed on if it wasn't that way. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I heard that one of the things, like you said that a lot of things have been happening Like, that happened very unintentionally, right? But Mm -hmm. I heard that one of the things that you are doing maybe more intentionally right now is that you have this idea of this bus, right? That that maybe is is one of the big goals. Like, that so much of what you have done has been very, like, or maybe organic, but that this has been kind of, like, the big dream. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like, that is coming up for the collective, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. no, you're, you're totally right. Um, so, you know, you might have seen for the folks that follow us uh, on social media, you might have seen that all we want for Christmas is the land back bus. That's I did how see we, that. Yes, yeah, exactly. We, we started our, our fundraising and our, our um, really expressed our goal to get a bus. And the idea is, you know, so many of us were able to benefit immensely from uh, being on the land, from visiting uh, elders and old people and our our ancestral homes, that we thought, what better way than to you know live our values and live our ethos is by getting some kind of vehicle where we can do that more frequently and and do that for other Métis folk and other Indigenous kin. So that's kind of how it started, but. We're calling it a land back bus um, in part because we want to be able to use it um, as an offering to to bring Indigenous folks and Indigenous kin who live um, in Winnipeg back to their home territories as well, whether that's, you know, it might be the first time they've ever visited. It might be, you know, 
they need to go visit their grandma, they need to go visit their daughter uh, in their homeland or for ceremony, you know, the, the ideas and the opportunities to have that bus are really endless. I was a little bit nervous to reach out to Red River Echoes, I'm not going to lie, um, because there are certain certain things that I was reading about that, you know, I, I was really excited to see the way that the youth were forming. So I keep saying youth, I'm sorry. You told me that it's not That's that okay. narrow, but the way that this group was forming and doing things in a, in a really, it's funny, I want to say unique way, and yet it it isn't in that it's kind of our traditional way of doing things, really. It's taking a, taking a step back to that. Um, I was very excited about that. But I also said, I don't want this podcast to be political. Like, that's not what I want to do. And I always feel like I have to offer an apology with that. But it's just that I don't do that well. And like, it's not what I think that I'm supposed to be doing. And I just really wanted this podcast to be something that lifted people up and made made our Métis people just feel really good about themselves. So that's where that's coming from. But the more that I spoke to you, Nat, the more that I recognize that that is the same at the heart of everything that you're doing as well. Is that yeah. correct to say that? Yeah, I, I, I think so. And, and I'd agree with that. And I think, you know, for, for those listeners who might know a little bit more about our, our organization or when we first formed, you know, it was, it started off as a group um, in direct opposition of some um, more traditional Métis governance groups. Um, but I think we all quickly realized that the best way to get to our goals is to live out those um i don't think traditional is the right word right. but you know like our our ways of being and our ways of relating and our ways of knowing um and so what that means to us is we're going to be fiery we're going to be political we're going to put ourselves out there in some sometimes and other times we're going to be joyful we're going to have throw a rendezvous where we have fiddles and, and a gathering and we share food and tea and bannock. And then we're gonna have other times where we come together to heal and to support each other. And it, it really became something bigger than just kind of capital P politics. Right. I mean, I personally subscribe to everything is political and the person <laughs> is political and, yes. and being joyful in a time of of sadness and grief is politics and is mm. doing doing that good and important step because if we can't imagine a different world we're never going to get there and so i think that's what the echoes is has been a big wake-up call for for a lot of us who are in it um that it's possible to build the structures and the organizations that um that we need and we just said to hell with it, we're going to do it. Oops, yeah. are we allowed to say hell? <laughs> I think you just did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so you've brought up land a whole lot. And like you talk mm -hmm. about land back, you talked about like um, taking kin and, and returning them back to the to their land. Um, just for all of our listeners and, you know, assuming that not everybody necessarily is Métis that lands on that, you know, listens to this podcast. Why is that so important? That that talking about the land and like connecting back to the land and bringing our kin to go and visit back to their land. Why is that important? 
You know, that's a great question because I think, um, you know, a lot of Indigenous peoples and Métis people and First Nation people, that's kind of an automatic answer. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of intuitively, you know why land is important. But for folks who might be disconnected or, or who might not come from those communities or those ways of knowing, it's that um, the land informs who we are and how uh, we interact not only with the land but with each other. It is where we get our medicines. It's where we get our water. It's where for uh, decades we uh, engaged in the buffalo hunt. It's how we express who we are and how we know who we are. Yeah. So in talking about like other um so for example we we had another guest on here that's doing some work with the Ministry of Health and when I think about the way that you have that Red River Echoes has organized I can see that being something that other entities organizations can can take on or 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 um, maybe be inspired by and you know look at their own structures and and figure out ways to decolonize their own structures yeah, and I think, you know, part of the the reason why um, we wanted to do this podcast, and I can appreciate, you know, this episode is focused on, on youth and youth organizing, um, is the hopes of inspiring other young people or other um, relations to develop this, a similar kind of organization. You know, like, don't, I'm not saying take our structure exactly because it's what's organic and what works for us. Right. But instead to be inspired to build decolonized or decolonizing groups and spaces mm-hmm. that of course, you know, we all live in, in, um, you know, so-called Canada right now. And, and we still have to, you know, walk those two worlds where we're going to live in those settler spaces. We're going to exist and work in those colonized and those capitalistic environments but to have somewhere else to go that really reflects who we are is um is extremely valuable and i hope that this inspires some um some folks to to do the same in in the spaces and the ways that work and speak for them i think that it definitely we definitely will like when i'm listening to your ideas you know i I have a lot of questions, I'm not going to lie, you know, it is completely different than, you know, the way that we've been doing things. It's yeah. completely different. And I'm just hearing that for the people in your collective that this is like that this organization formed at a critical moment for them and mm-hmm. that this was really able to, you know, facilitate them getting back to the land and, you know, like what an important, what a, an important collective I'm sure mm-hmm. for so many of so many members, right? Yeah, and and you know, getting back to the land and also getting back to each other right. is something yes. that we talk about too. You know, I I was telling Lisa this, but you know, the first so as a group before we officially formed, you know, we had been talking on different social media platforms. Um, but never did a video call. And so I remember joining that first Zoom call and looking around and thinking, oh my God, (laughs) we like look so related. We sound so related. (laughs) And it was just so comforting to be in a space where like, oh, here you are. 
here's my people. Right. They're, where where have you been? I've been waiting. Because That's it can be what so isolating. Like. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And especially right now and 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 especially in the way that, you know, society's currently structured and and the way that the economy works where it's just you're the individual and you take care of yourself and that's it. And like, that's not our way. That's not, I think many people's ways. And so to be able to live out the opposition to, to that is uh, really, really beautiful. I really enjoyed when we were talking, um, you, you spoke about how it, there's never the assumption that a person has capacity to do something that, you know, there's different, different times where we do and times when we don't. And that, um, you kind of lift each other up and and step in and do the jobs that you want to do when you feel inspired to do them. Yeah, precisely. So um, I that's something that you know I've found really valuable, and I think um, many of us have is this idea of and it's one thing that I haven't talked about yet. But so each pedal and each circle. Um, has a captain and a co-captain and so at the end of every meeting well as a group and whoever's there and sometimes it's folks who's not there who aren't there um will say okay i'm you know this month this next few months i'm i've got the energy and i've got the drive to be captain or co-captain so that's to analogize it it would be like the chair of the committee or something like that the person in charge of the group um, or the person, let's say, tasked with speaking for that circle. And that's inspired and, from the hunt, right? Am I wrong? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, do I have my book? I do. I'll take this. So, you know, we were also, when we were forming, I don't know if you can see it. It's called the Métis Elders Conference. Okay. And uh, it's a book that's from, I think, through the late 70s or early 80s. Um, and it's all interviews with elders, um, and it's, it was a conference there, and, and, you know, many of us have that knowledge from our personal elders, and many of us don't, and so when we were reading this, there's a whole section on Métis law and Métis governing, and this idea of the co-captain and the captain from the laws of the buffalo hunt, and this mm -hmm. idea that, you know, there's the one person that's in charge, but that changes. It depends on who's the right person for that specific task, who has the energy and the drive and the capability to, to lead us. So we also wanted to use some language that reflected um, that part of our history as well. So we used captain and co-captain. And then um, the main kind of center of the flower in our collective will have uh, usually two co-captains um, and they'll lead the big meeting that we have usually every like three to five months. So I love that concept, you know, and like as you're talking about this, I'm just thinking about the difference, you know, so many different meetings that I'll come into or boards that I sit on or committees that I sit on. And sometimes the difference between that sharing the space and allowing uh, allowing people to ri to rise to their best when they're able to. Um, versus the meeting where somebody's chairing it and and they're talking at you and you sit and you listen and you wait until you get invited to to add in some information but otherwise you sit and listen to them talk and it never feels fulfilling it never feels like I'm able to do the work that needs to be done um, 
it it makes me think as well about and it's the right word meritos or meritos or oh why am I having trouble with that figuring out who's thank you that's the word we'll edit that out right (laughs) (laughs) you know like the idea that oh this person is the best to be doing this job and that's just not always the way that it is like circumstance comes into play and and you know everything right But also, I'm sure we've all been there that there's things that we want to participate in, but we feel that we shouldn't because we can't give it our all, right? We don't have the time for it. We don't have, you know, um, the energy, whatever, whatever our situation is, right? So if there's the flexibility to give, you know, give our time, give our, our knowledge, give whatever when, when we have the capability you know, then then you're able to commit to things that you would love to commit to, right? If you can flow, ebb and flow in and out of spaces when you're when you're capable, when you're able. It and it's also I I'll have to say that as I listen to this, there's a lot of yeah buts going on as well for me. Like you know where where things as we're talking about this, it makes perfect sense. But then also I think about some of the some of the organizations that I'm a part of that it's like. Yeah, but that wouldn't work. Yeah, but that's, yeah, but that wouldn't move forward, you know, and so it really is a lot to change and to embrace. And I don't know, I'm just really inspired by, by hearing what is being done. Thank you. Um, I think, I think one of the benefits and why it works for us is, you know, all the members who, um, participate we all come from you know similar shared values and and shared ways of knowing and and ways of relating so we already have that baseline to know it was obvious that we were going to do things um as a group and decide unanimous isn't the right word but work through our questions and our issues and and our actions in a way where we feel comfortable maybe pushing back on some elements, but eventually coming to a harmonious decision. Mm-hmm. So we rather than, you know, there's this idea that I love to share because when I heard it, it really spoke to me. It's the idea that right now, especially in politics and in social justice organizations, um, it's it's the notion that we have to be unified. We have to all agree on every single point all the time. Right. Other, you're, otherwise, you're not with us. Right. Instead of speaking, instead of thinking about things as unity, I like to think about things instead as harmony. So, how can we get from unity to harmony? And harmony, in my mind, is we all agree we respect each other's opinions and our values are shared and we, our goals are shared, but our ways of getting there might be a little different. Right. And they might they might take different forms and they might be one person speaking up in the media and another person cooking bannock right. for the group as we're organizing. So, you know, it's a spectrum. We we recognize that, you know, folks will get to that point in different ways. And our organizational structure allows for that. Kind so. of just meeting people where they're at. Yeah. Right. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Precisely. I love that uh, what I'm hearing is like modern day Métis people, you know, doing things in our way of doing them today. Yeah, 
exactly. So, um, and I think that's Making something that... Making history today, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because Métis history yeah. didn't end with the Battle of Vatash. No. Everybody no. thinks it. Well, a lot of people thinks it, think it did, but didn't. I had uh, an old person once say that we are, you are the future generations that your ancestors prayed for. That, you know, that's who we are right now. We're, the, we're that future generation that our ancestors prayed for. And so, you know, being able to still do things in this, in this way today, I'm really inspired. Thank you. And you created this for yourselves. And it's, yeah. yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for taking the time to come on and speak to us today. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? No, just my sincere thanks for, for having us. And I can't wait to listen to the episode and, and future episodes. And maybe we'll be back again. Yeah, Part that'd two. be wonderful. All right. <laughs> wonderful. Thank you so much, Nat. Okay. Be thanks. well. Thank you. You too. You're very welcome. Okay, Alexandra, that was episode three. Yeah. And it was a bit of a bead soup episode. It was a bit of a bead soup episode. We just took all of the beads, all these beautiful beads, poured them together and, you know, saw what we could make with it. And I think it's come out beautifully. Yeah. We always say that the things that we make out of bead soup are beautiful. Yeah, that's right. So now I, before we're done, I do want to know from your perspective as a teacher, grade six, seven students, what do you want for Métis youth? You know, I think some of the youth touched on this, but what I hope for them is that they have access to mentorship. mentorship. Yes. Because I just think that a lot of our youth are craving culture and they're craving um, adults and old people where that people they can learn from and people they can talk to and people they can reach out to. And I guess that's what I hope for them is that they can continue to learn and to grow and that they have that mentorship. Right. Yeah. And speaking to any of the young listeners listening right now, what do you want them to know or think about? Um, I guess what I want them to think about is that, well, one thing I just, one thing I think about is just that there's many generations behind us who have fought really hard mm -hmm. for us to be where we are now today. And I want the younger generations to feel pride in mm -hmm. the culture that we have and to know that those generations, yeah, that those generations have fought to get us where we are today and that, you know, we're just, we're so privileged to be here today and to be Métis. And I think even taking, taking it, um, I think that those generations would also be very proud. Well, exactly. Are, yeah, doing. they'd be proud of us. Yeah. And yeah, what an amazing what an amazing thing to be here today. This has been episode 3 of Beating Together. Thank you to our guests Keenan McCarthy, Natalie Copps, and Drew Nagale, and special thanks to my guest host Alexandra De Montigny. Beating Together is produced and edited by Aaron Dawson, audio engineer Matthew Jansen. Our theme music was composed by Métis actress and musician Alexa Berard. Our podcast artwork was designed by Métis graphic designer Emma Grant. This podcast was made possible through funding from Métis Nation BC.